0: Um, It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll pick up where we left off last week. We worked through books of the Bible a little bit at a time here at Cornerstone, and uh, we're picking up where we left off last week. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under the chair in front of you. It's hardback and black, and you'll find uh, reading today on page 967 of the uh, church Bible. And I want you to know that it really is an honor and privilege that you give to me Uh, It's a great kindness that you show to me in allowing me to preach the Bible to you every week. It is really one of the greatest joys of my life to be able to preach God's Word to the people I love most in the world. So thank you so very much for that uh, great kindness you show me. I'll read the passage, then I'll pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and uh, then we'll get started working verse by verse through this passage. As usual, it'll probably take us around 45 minutes or so. It's a bit of a longer passage than we normally take on. But I trust, with the Lord's help, we'll be able to uh, manage it. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 2. And we'll read all the way to the end of chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said that before, that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you In the sight of God, therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. His affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you with open hands and open hearts As the deer pants for the waters, so our souls pant after you. We are a needy people. Make us an expectant people. That as we work our way through this word, your word, we would expect that your spirit would meet us, speak to us, encourage us, Strengthen us, even convict us, equip us for work in your kingdom that your Son might be magnified in this place, in our hearts, and through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What makes a good church? What makes a healthy church? How would you know if you found one? Is it the music? Is it the uplifting and encouraging messages? Is it the dynamic youth program? Or the good coffee? Could be that. Is it the Is it a sense of authentic community in the church? Maybe it's how they care for the poor. Maybe it's how many small groups they have. Is it their discipleship program that makes a good church? Is it their conservative politics and their patriotism? Is it the absence of conflict that makes a healthy church? Or is it the handsome and winsome pastor? (laughs) Yeah, God help us if that's the case. So what does make a good church? I'm not sure how you would define that or answer that question. It's probably a combination of a number of things that I just mentioned. But I wonder how the Apostle Paul might answer that question. What makes a good, healthy church? When I was a kid, There was a Christian cartoon program called Superbook where there was these two kids that they would be transported back in time, and they would be able to be firsthand firsthand encounters in the biblical stories. And I wonder if we could be like them in Superbook and go back in time and visit the first century church at Corinth, the one that Paul's writing this letter to. Would we consider the Corinthian church a good church? Would we consider it a healthy church? I wonder... Would you join that church? I wonder after you had joined that church and you found out how seriously messed up that church is, would you resign membership at that church? Because we don't really know what their music program was like we don't know how they did youth at Corinth we don't really know if they had small groups or an outreach program what we do know is that they met weekly we know that they preached from the scriptures we know that they celebrated the lord's supper regularly we know that they ate meals together regularly we know that they operated in the gifts of the spirit we also know they had conflict there was socioeconomic disunity in the church Rich people staying with rich people, poor people staying with poor people. There were issues of legalism versus freedom in Christ. Arguments about that. They were confused about marriage. They were confused about gender roles. Some of their members were suing other members. There was disagreement about sexual ethics. There was disagreement about how to interact with their non-Christian neighbors whether to eat the food that their neighbors gave to them or not. They tolerated, some even celebrated sin in their membership. And then when their apostle, the apostle Paul, came to them and corrected those errors, they flat out rejected him. Does that sound like a healthy church? And so I ask you again, would you join the church at Corinth? More to the point, would you share the Apostle Paul's thoughts about the Corinthian church? I'll read them for you again. Verse 4, I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. Verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. How can Paul say that? After all that I just read about who the Corinthian church was, how could Paul say, I have complete confidence in you? What would give the apostle such confidence in such a screwed-up church? Well, the passage before us today tells us what gave him great confidence. The apostle Paul had complete confidence in the Corinthian church because they were repentant. Even if it took him time for them to get there. They embraced God's word, received God's word, and saw the sin that God's word pointed to, and then repented of that sin. And that's what gave the apostle confidence that this was a good church, but not just a good church. This was God's church at Corinth. Here's the big idea this morning, as best as I can tell from this passage. You can see this on the backside of your worship guide. A healthy Christian church is one that receives God's word and grieves over and repents of sin. God's word or God's church, a Christian, good, healthy Christian church is one that receives God's word, is grieved over their sin and repents of their sin. So as usual, to make this big passage easier to digest, we'll take it on in three parts. First, we'll look at verse 2 to 7. That we are in this together. Then, in verse eighteen, verse eight to thirteen, uh, we'll look at how we we are grieved into repenting. A godly church is grieved into repenting, and then at the end, verse thirteen to sixteen, we'll look at how repentance leads to joy. So let's look at verse two to seven again and see how we are in this together. Paul says. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. We're in this together. Verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We reflected at every turn, fighting without and fear within but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Two things to note in these verses. First, I want you to notice how Paul considers himself united with the Corinthian church. Paul considers himself united with the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians, Uh, It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul and his friend, a young pastor named Timothy. And in verse 3, he says to the Corinthians, you guys are in my heart. You're in our hearts. We're in this together. We die together. We live together. And he urges the church to open their hearts to him and Timothy. Well, this is something we've already heard before. Back in chapter 6, he said the very same thing. He keeps urging them, open your hearts to us. And then he explains his method there in verse 3, we have wronged no one. In verse 2, we have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Throughout all of his interactions with the Corinthian church, the apostle Paul had one goal in mind, their spiritual well-being. How hard it is when your one goal is to help someone, and all they seem to be doing is being bent on self-destruction. Paul had no interest in gaining anything by the church at all, except reasons to boast on the Lord's work in them. And their relationship had been strained, as I said, they rejected his instruction. But he keeps urging them to make room in their hearts for him. I don't know if you've experienced this, but it's sort of like the aftermath of conflict. If you've ever had conflict with someone and that by God's grace you've been reconciled, there's a time when the wounds are still healing. And, and the wound is still tender to the touch. It's healing, but it's still tender. Trust is being restored, but it takes time. There's still apprehension between the two of you. When Christians I- encountered conflict with one another and by God's grace reconcile with one another, their relationship that they once had, it'll never be the same. It'll be better. It'll be strengthened by the conflict, strengthened by the repentance on both sides, strengthened by the restoration that God has enabled. It'll be shaped by that reconciliation. And so that they'll never suffer from the laxity and shapelessness that it once had. And so Paul wants these Corinthians to know that they're in this together. Paul and the Corinthian church, they're together. If you die, we die. If you live, we live. And then comes his first expression of Paul's thoughts towards them in verse 4. He's bold towards them saying, I have great pride in you I'm filled with comfort in all our afflictions that are overflowing with joy. And then he explains... What had filled him with joy and comfort? His friend Titus had brought good news. Well, that's the second thing I want you to note. Good news from a good friend. If you remember in our time through this book, 2 Corinthians, uh, back in chapter 2, we learned of the Apostle Paul's distress about the Corinthian church. You'll remember that 2 Corinthians is not The second letter Paul wrote to them is probably the fourth letter Paul wrote to that church. After Paul had helped to establish the church at Corinth, he leaves that town and he writes them a letter. That letter that he wrote to them, that's been lost. We don't have that letter anymore. The church received that letter. They read it among them and they had some questions. They're a a fairly new church and they're growing and what it means to be a Christian and how to be a church. And so they write the apostle questions that they had to him. He receives their letter, and he, he writes a letter in response. And the letter he wrote in response, that's the one that we know as 1 Corinthians. That's why in 1 Corinthians, you'll come across these phrases that say, now about the matters about which you wrote. And so he'll explain an answer to the, their question. Well, he wrote them that letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians. They received it, but they didn't apply it. They rejected it. And Paul learns of this. And so Paul makes an unscheduled visit to Corinth to visit that church. And by the way, most biblical historians think that the Corinthian church was about the same size as our church. Somewhere between 50 and 150 people. He makes an unscheduled visit to that small church to address those problems. And if you remember, he was not received well on that unscheduled visit. They rejected him. They rejected and refused to heed his instruction. And so he leaves frustrated and deeply discouraged. And so then he writes them a third letter, a scathing rebuke. It's the one he refers to in verse 8. And he sent that scathing rebuke, that letter, the third one, with his friend Titus. He's probably in Ephesus at the time. He sends Titus with the letter, the rebuke, to, to Corinth. And they must have planned some kind of rendezvous in the city of Troas after Titus had delivered the letter and seen how they responded and that they would meet Paul at a certain time in Troas. But it's the first century. And remember, news travels slowly. So Paul had to anxiously await the return of Titus on how the Corinthian church had responded to his severe letter. Would they repent of their sins or would they continue down the path of apostasy? And Paul and Timothy wait for Titus and Troas, waiting for any word. They can't find Titus and Troas. And even though the Lord gives them opportunities to share the gospel in Troas, he explains in chapter 2, his spirit is not at rest. I can't stay here without hearing from Titus about what's happening at Corinth. He must know what's going on with the Corinthian church and how they're getting along. And so he leaves Troas and goes to Macedonia in search of Titus. And when he comes to Macedonia, he's met with more conflict. That's what we see in verse 5. He says, our bodies were not at rest, but we were afflicted again in every way, fighting outside, fear on the inside. He even admits that he's downcast. That's a heavy word in the Greek. It means downhearted, brought low, despondent, discouraged. Many pastors know exactly what that's like, fighting without fear within and the despondency that that creates. But in the midst of Paul's sorrow and fear for his church at Corinth, God is gracious, and he is comforted when he finally finds his friend Titus. And Titus brings him good news from the church at Corinth. They had received his severe letter, and to God be the praise, they repented of their sin. Titus is comforted himself by their repentance, and his comfort he gives to the Apostle Paul, and Paul is comforted. Now, if you look at the language of verses 6 and 7, it should sound familiar to you. Paul opens his letter with very similar language. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are received by, are comforted by God. So this is what's happening. Titus has been comforted, and so Titus brings his comfort to Paul, and Paul is comforted. Paul learns the Corinthians were mourning over their sins. Paul learns that the Corinthians were enthusiastic about their concern for the apostle. Paul learns that the Corinthians were enthusiastic about reconciling with Paul. And this brings Paul great joy. His fears are relieved. Joy fills the old apostle's heart. The Corinthian church had not fallen away. They had not fallen into apostasy. His work was not in vain among them. They turned back to God and they were zealous to reconcile. They had received correction. They had grieved their sin and their grief was godly grief which led them to repentance which is what he explains next in verse 8 to 13. They were grieved into repenting. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that's the severe letter, I don't regret it even though I did regret it for I saw that it grieved you but only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. I didn't like making you feel bad, but I rejoice that you did feel bad because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you? But also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourself to be innocent in the matter. So although you, I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. And listen to this carefully. We'll get to this in a minute. This is the reason Paul wrote that severe letter, in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Paul's severe letter had its desired effect. Corinth was brought to repentance. But before they were brought to repentance, they were brought to grief. The letter ticked them off. It hurt their feelings. Millennials aren't the only snowflakes. It hurt their feelings. They were grieved. And Paul was grieved that he had to do that, especially since he had to send his difficult letter with someone else so that Paul wouldn't be there to see how they received it. He wouldn't be there to read their body language. He wouldn't be there to sit down with the elders. He would have to trust God's spirit to work through Titus and through his word. How difficult that must have been to write a letter addressing some difficulty in their life and then not know how they received it. I don't know, if you, maybe you've had to do that sometime. Maybe you've had to write a letter to address some problem in someone's life, some difficulty. Maybe you've had to send a corrective email or leave a corrective voicemail. and You don't know how they took it. You don't know if you were too harsh. You don't know if you were too direct. You didn't know if you were clear on the matter. You don't even know if you understood the matter correctly to correct the matter. And if you love that person, you're in anguish until you hear back from them. Well, this must have been how Paul felt. It was certainly weeks, perhaps even months before, after sending a letter before he would hear anything in return. And even though there was an opportunity for for the gospel in Troas, he had to know how the Corinthian church was doing. He had to find Titus. He was in anguish. So he and Timothy went to Macedonia. They found Titus. Probably in Macedonia, they stayed with the the Philippian church. He had helped to plant the Philippian church. It's possible that he wrote the, the, the letter of 2 Corinthians from Philippi. So when Titus came there with good news that they had repented, can you imagine the apostles' relief? Can you see the old apostle's face? Can you see him wrapping his arms around Titus and both of them sharing tears of relief? Paul was not only comforted, but he was filled with joy. Not because they were grieved, but because they were grieved into repenting. So nothing was lost. As difficult as it had been for Paul to write that letter, nothing was lost. Everything was gained. Their grief was a godly grief, meaning their grief came from the Lord, and it brought repentance and life. This is good for us to know. If you hear nothing else in this sermon, I'll have you hear this. Know this. There are two kinds of grief. Two kinds of grief. There's godly grief, which comes from the Lord, produces repentance, Leads to life. And there is worldly grief, which is not from the Lord, which does not produce repentance, but produces death. That's what Paul says in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death we must know how to distinguish between the two. There are many species of grief that you will experience in this life, and we'll all experience grief of some sort or another. You'll grieve after being caught doing something you shouldn't have been doing. You'll grieve when you say something harsh to someone you love. You'll grieve when you've been overheard bad-mouthing your boss. You'll grieve when you've been caught gossiping. You'll grieve when you view pornography. You'll, You'll grieve when you've been caught in a lie. You'll grieve when you've found out that you just wasted your time or wasted your money. But all of grief, whatever, it, whatever the, the, the thing that caused the grief is, all grief falls into those two categories. Either it's godly grief or it's worldly grief. One of them leads to repentance and salvation, but the other one leads to death and regret. How do we know which is which? Commentator David Garland is helpful in distinguishing the two when he writes, Worldly grief is caused by the loss of, or denial of something we want for ourselves. It is self centered, gives rise to despair, bitterness, paralysis. It causes our souls to drown in self pity. Worldly grief is self centered. Worldly grief is self centered. When someone is caught in a sin or an impropriety of some kind, adultery or whatever, they feel grief. They feel bad for what they've done. But their reasons for feeling bad are selfish reasons. They care about the negative consequences and the impact of getting caught as it has had on them. They care about the impact that their sin has on their reputation. And so it's damage control. It regrets action only because of what it cost them in terms of loss of relationship or money. But worldly grief, being selfish, is turned inward. It's turned inward. If they had not been caught... If they could do it all over again without the consequences of doing it, they would do it again. But worldly grief hardens hearts and produces death. Dr. Garland goes on with his quote by showing the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. He says, godly grief leads to repentance. It cracks the whip that causes us to turn to God. It incites us to seek to do something about the problem by taking the past tense and allowing God to turn it into his future tense. What Dr. Gordon is saying is that godly grief is God-focused. Worldly grief is self-focused, but godly grief is God-focused. It understands that the sin has been committed against the Lord. It causes us to realize that we have brought dishonor on God's name. And we care far more about our dishonor that we brought to God's name than the dishonor we brought on our own name. It causes us to turn to God, to mourn our sin, to ask for his forgiveness and moves us to make right what we have made wrong. Worldly grief was turned inward, but godly grief is turned upward and outward. Paul says that godly grief produces repentance Now, repentance is not the same as remorse. Repentance is not the same as remorse. Remorse can be faked. When caught in sin, some folks can put on a show. The waterworks come out. They say all the things that you expect them to say as if they were really, truly sorry. Sorry. They're Shakespearean actors, capable of fooling even themselves. They'll say sorry. They'll weep. They'll seek to make amends. But they're doing this only so that the feelings they feel would go away. It's to save face. Because anyone can be remorseful for wrongdoing. You can fake that. You don't need Christ to be remorseful. But you must have Christ to be repentant. Think of the difference between Peter and Judas. Both had sinned against the Lord Jesus in the hours before his death on the cross. Both of them felt grief. Peter ran and bitterly wept. Judas went back to the Pharisees and threw down the pieces of silver. Peter's heart was softened. and He turned to the Lord and met him at Galilee, and he repented. And after his resurrection, the Lord Jesus restored the apostle Peter. But Judas, though he grieved as well, though he was remorseful, As well, Judas' heart was hardened. Judas was turned in on himself. And his worldly grief led to death. He hung himself by the neck. Or think of Esau Esau sold his birthright for a single meal, and he was grieved. He wanted it back, but for selfish reasons. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he found no opportunity to repent, even though he saw it with tears. Friends, tears is no sign of true repentance. Godly grief is given by God. God. It softens hearts, turns us away from ourselves, turns us to God. Read Psalm chapter 38, which we prayed through a little bit earlier. When you sin, is Psalm 38 the song in your heart? Read Psalm 51. When you sin, is your heart broken before the Lord? As you say, against you and you alone have I sinned. Godly grief turns us to God, not away from Him, and moves us to make it right. You can tell that the Corinthian church had godly grief because look at verse 11. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. They were committed to making it right. True repentance is visible. True repentance makes changes. It turns away from sin toward God. There's a noticeable change in behavior. Remember John the Baptist told the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's fruit that comes out of repentance and keeps coming out of repentance. True repentance is evidence of a changed heart. Of changed behaviors. And the fruit of it is lasting. The Corinthians were eager to clear themselves of this sin. They were indignant about the sin that they had committed. And they were motivated by fear. You notice that in verse 11? What fear this has produced in you? This worldly or this godly grief has produced fear in you. What do you, what do you suppose Paul means by fear? What kind of fear? Are they afraid? It seemed to me that they were motiva- motivated by a fear of what might have happened had they not repented. And if I'm being honest, it's one of my greatest concerns for our church is that we might lack godly fear when it comes to sin. Many times I've sat with those who've said something like, "I know it's wrong." I'm going to do it anyway, and then I'm going to ask the Lord to forgive me. Have you ever thought that? I remember sitting with one guy who said he was going to leave his wife. And I told him I didn't think he should. He was a believer. And he said, you're talking about this as if I'm going to lose my salvation. Are you saying God won't forgive me? Here's what we know. We know that God will forgive the repentant heart. God will be faithful. If we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins. What we don't know, what that man at that Mexican restaurant didn't know, was that he would be repentant. What assurance do we have if we're going to say before the Lord, I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. I'll just ask for forgiveness after I'm done. You know God will be faithful to forgive you of a repentant heart. What you don't know is that you'll be repentant. If you're not repentant now, what assurance do you have that your heart will be softened after you sin? Sin should bring a level of fear. Godly grief produces a a level of fear about what might happen if we don't repent. It's possible the Lord may just give us over to the hardness of our heart. May the Lord in His mercy spare all of us that treacherous destiny. The Corinthians feared what might happen if they didn't repent, and they longed to make it right. They were zealous before God. The ESV translate the next word in verse 11 as punishment. Other translations use the word justice. It's the same concept. The church was committed to addressing sin and for correcting sin in their church. And this could be a reference to the church discipline that Paul referred to back in chapter two, or it could just be them setting right these problems that were going on in their church. Either way, they were going to make it right because true repentance is God wrought, and it It's more than remorse, and it leads to lasting change, and it can't be faked. If you're a Christian and you've come to this church, I want you to know I'm so glad that you did come to this church. We were expecting that you would come here today. And I hope that you see that by reading these passages, the Bible is telling us that we're all sinners, every single one of us. Every person in this room is a sinner, and the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is a Christian is a repentant sinner, where a non-Christian is not a repentant sinner. That those of us who have trusted in the Lord have repented of our sins, we have found peace with God, and today we're inviting you into that peace. If you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you could know the peace of God over your life. If you've never done that before, you should do that today. Don't leave here today with a heart hardened by sin that will be only further hardened if you continue in it. Go to the Lord, repent of your sins, and then tell someone here about it. These are my friends. I know they'd be happy to talk with you about a new life in Christ. Verse 12 is helpful, as I said earlier, in understanding the point of what Paul's making in this passage. He goes, I wrote to you, not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, I'm not even writing for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Here's why I'm writing, that your earnestness for us, your earnestness for us apostles might be revealed to you in the sight of God. The reason the apostle Paul wrote the severe letter was to show the Corinthian church of their own earnestness toward Paul in the sight of God. In other words, I wanted you to know in God's sight that you are devoted to me. Is that weird logic? Is that a weird reasoning to write the letter? Well, it would be if Paul were just any guy. But Paul is an apostle. He's an emissary of God on high. He's writing Scripture. It seems to be saying that you will know that you are a true and authentic church of the living God because when you receive God's word through me and take heed of God's word through me and are grieved over God, over your sin as revealed by God's word through me and then walk out God's word as revealed to you by me. When you do that, Corinth, you'll know you are a true church of the living God. And in that way, Paul is comforted. We see this idea again as we close our time together in in, in this last section, verse 13b. Picking up the second half of, of verse 13, from repentance to joy. Paul writes, and beside our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. How refreshing it is when someone repents of sin. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, just as in everything we said of you is true, so also our boasting before Titus is proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul mentions again his and Timothy's comfort at the coming of Titus. Titus has been refreshed by the Corinthians' reception of God's correction and repentance. And Paul mentions how delighted he is to be confirmed about his boasting in them. But have a look at verse 15. Titus' affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. There's that word fear again. Titus' affection for the Corinthian church was increased as he remembered their obedience. So they had received the word of God It had brought them to mourn of their sin. It had been used by the spirit of God to change their hearts and they began to obey God's word and show the fruit of their repentance. This is the fruit of repentance. Obedience to God's word. One of the clearest evidences that someone is in Christ is how they deal with sin. They don't make excuses for it. They don't shift the blame around to someone else. They don't seek to hide their sin. They own it. They mourn it. They turn away from it. That was the Corinthian response. Fear and trembling before the Lord. It's a mark of a healthy church. They knew whose they were if you remember from last week. And this report from dear Titus filled this old apostle with joy so that he can declare, I have complete confidence in you. The Corinthian church proved themselves to be a godly church, a healthy church, because they received the word of God and they applied the word of God by turning from their rebellion against God Trusting in the forgiveness they could find in Christ. So we go back to the question we asked at the opening. What makes a good church? What makes a healthy church? Many things, to be sure. But not, at the very least, this. They take God's Word seriously, understanding that they are under God's Word, growing in their knowledge of and application of God's Word. They don't make excuses for sin. They don't try to explain it away. They grieve over sin. They turn away from sin and turn to the Lord. This is what makes a good church. It's not a perfect church. Under God's Word, a good church is a repentant church. And in that the Apostle Paul, and all who are members of that good church can say, I have complete confidence in you. Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. We go before the Lord again asking Him for His forgiveness of our sins. So if you would join with me in praying a prayer of repentance. Father in heaven, we seek to be a good church, a godly church, a healthy church. We seek to honor Christ and to exalt Him. But we know that we can't do this on our own. We need Your Spirit to come and to form us and to shape us by Your Word. We need your wisdom to apply your word to our lives. And we thank you today for sending your word to us. We thank you for the convictions we feel. We pray the grief we feel over our sin would be godly grief. And we ask that you would protect us, Lord, from worldly grief. In your mercy, keep us from acting in self-interest. May we be a people who care more for God's reputation than we do for our own. Make us a people of God, imperfect to be sure, carrying a message of a perfect Savior. Give us grace to hate our sin, to grieve over it, and by your enabling to turn from it and make right what we have made wrong. Would you bring glory to your Son, applying this text to our life in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's your assurance of pardon if you are truly repentant of your sins. The Bible says, if I confess my iniquity, I'm sorry for my sin. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation.